Welcome to Culture Bites, where we take culture theory and turn it into everyday insights. We're powered by Human Synergistics, and our mission is to change the world one organization at a time. We can only do that together with our amazing community, so thank you for listening. Welcome to Culture Bites. My name's Dominic Gawley. I'm a consultant with Human Synergistics Australia, and I'm joined on the show this week by our head of consulting, Corinne Cantor. Hey, Corinne. Hi, Dom. How are you? I'm doing really well. Hey, Corinne. We've been getting a few different inquiries and had a few different conversations, you know, just so happens about a similar topic, which is particularly around organizations which have a predominantly passive culture today, wanting to move to a constructive culture, probably particularly on that kind of achievement side, I guess, is is what a lot of them are targeting and really looking for clues about, you know, what can they do? You know, what's going to get them momentum and traction and how do they send those messages like some pragmatic things to do so i'd love to have your your thoughts on that today how does that sound yeah great dom i've i've actually had a few clients who recently were saying that they're really interested in growing achievement because their culture measure their culture baseline came out with a bit more of a bias for passive defensive norms in the organization So it's a great question to do because it brings together understanding the relationship between levers for change and the circumplex. You know, and so it's interesting because we highlight those different styles. And if you think in circumplex terms, a passive is sort of opposite achievement. It's on the other side. And that's often what we see, right, when cultures and even individual thinking and behavior tend towards that green side, that passive side, it tends to pull the achievement and self-actualizing with it. And so that's why we're kind of talking about building those ones up in particular. Maybe before we go any further, Corinne, it might just be useful for people to get an understanding of, you know, what what do we mean when we say a passive culture? What does mm. that look like? You know, what would mm. you experience? What's the impact of it? And then maybe talk about, you know, the flip side if we had a more constructive, more achievement orientated culture. Yeah, good one. So first of all, when we're talking about culture, we're talking about behavioral norms, so norms and expectations of how I feel I'm expected to behave when I'm interacting with others in uh, colleagues and when I'm doing my job. And so when we're talking about passive defensive norms, which we measure using the circumplex, we're talking about a set of four styles which encourage people to be careful to be passive defensive. So passive Mm. defensive, if you think about it as if we step out of circumplex for a while, think about it as the flight instinct. Mm -hmm. So it's in an organization, if you've got a passive defensive culture, you feel like you've got to play it safe. Okay. You've got to be careful. You've got to make sure that you stay on people's good side. So if you think about the approval style in as a norm in an organization, people feel like they're getting messages that they have to be nice. They have to keep on people's Uh good side. They Uh can't upset anyone. Okay, and So if you can imagine a new person, um, a new colleague for you in an organisation, Dom, and I come to you and I I say, look, I found this, um, I think that there's a problem with this policy and I thought I might go and tell our boss, Sue, about it. And then Dom says to me, oh, you better not. Look, we don't want to upset so you know, let's yeah. just keep things the way they are. Don't yeah. rock that boat. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So approval. So from that I'm saying, okay, 
obviously this is a sensitive issue and I, I better back off. I better not not mm. talk up. So so Dom's kind of illustrated passive defensive message, approval, don't upset her. But also then there's conventional. Conventional norm encourages people to play by the book. Don't rock the boat. Keep the status quo the way it is. Just do what you're told and make a good impression. Yep. Okay. And then we've got the dependent style, which in an organisation, the norm, if you've got a dependent culture, then people feel that they've got to do what they've told, they've got to wait to be instructed, and they've got to clear everything that they do with the people above them, with their leaders. And then, of course, you've got the avoidance style. And in norm, in an organisation, an avoidance culture basically makes people feel that they're expected to push decisions upwards, yep. not take any chances, make the popular decision rather than the necessary one, keep your head down. Safer to do nothing than to do something. That's right. Better yep. not to do anything than to do something that's wrong. Right, yes. Okay, so yep. it's avoiding failure. So in a passive defensive culture, you've got a culture as a result, the culture of the organisation will move slowly. It'll feel uh -huh. like it's hard to get things done. It's difficult to get a decision. It seems to take a long time to get things approved for the recruitment, for example. It may be that you need a lot of signatures before you can actually proceed with that hiring decision. So it feels slow and cumbersome and very risk-averse. We revisit that same conversation five times, and even revisit. once we agree... We don't really execute, you know, stuff like that. That's right. Yeah. And so there's a real focus when you've got a passive defensive culture, if it's stronger, if that's the predominant message, then you've got a culture that encourages people to avoid failure, okay, play it safe. Now, the problem with that is while you, you don't want people to make mistakes, you know, at one level serially, it doesn't encourage people to do their best work. It doesn't encourage people to take initiative. It doesn't encourage people to come forward with new ideas. It doesn't encourage people to speak up. So these are all characteristics of a constructive norm. And so and it encourages a level of dependency. Sorry, Dom, I think you were going to say something there. Uh, no, I think I was just adding on to your list of, you know, we want people to take ownership and stuff. And, yeah. and on the other side is... I'm just doing what I'm told or I'm just following the rules, right? It's a lack of ownership, yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, in a passive defensive culture, people are afraid of using their own judgment. Yes. Okay, and so they defer to people, to others, and if it's overly dependent, they're going to defer to people in positions of authority. Now, one of the things that shape a passive defensive culture will be how leaders behave. Yep. And so the more aggressive a leader they may be, the more they might drive that kind of message that you've got to behave in a green way or a passive defensive way. Right. So if I go around telling people what to do, pretty yeah. soon they're going to be like, tell me what to do, right? That's and start right. Un unplugging their brains. You know, that's kind of how I think of those green ones sometimes. I'm going to unplug my brain, yep. wait to be told what to do, have a rule to follow, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think people start to doubt their skill and doubt right. their ability to think things through and to problem solve. And even if they don't doubt it, they would rather take the path of 
increased safety, least resistance, right. then chance that they might get it wrong and they might experience a negative repercussion. So I think that's the passive defensive culture. Look, a lot of organisations have a mixture yeah. of blue and red and green, but we're going to emphasise the passive defensive so that we can talk about how to move to a, a more constructive culture. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it's often like, you know, it can be nice. It can be a really nice place to be. Everyone's oh, yeah. friendly and yeah. stuff, but we're missing out on having some of the real conversations and advancing, you know, decisions yeah. and actually moving somewhere. Yeah. You know, and so. I think, you know, everybody's really friendly, but not necessarily straight. You know, yeah, not genuine. Yeah, genuine. not genuine. Yeah. Well, they could be genuine, but they're not going to be direct with you. They're not going to raise the issues because they don't want to upset. It depends. So it can be from an organizational effectiveness point of view and yeah. from it can be a real potential derailer for mm. the organization's mm. ability to deliver its objectives, its strategy, meet customer needs. And to give you an example, in a passive defensive organization, a culture where the culture is what we would say is more green, customers are probably going to experience people who are super friendly and who probably might be quite good with dealing a standard problem. But if you raise a problem that's a little bit different to the norm, you might get a response like, can you hang on a second? I'll check with someone. Can I put you on hold? or that's not my job, I'll put you through to another department. So customers can experience cultures with passive defensive, organisations with passive defensive cultures as being slow to respond, not customer-centric, and more concerned with meeting the organisation's policies than they are with solving my issue. I was going to add, like I've seen ones where, you know, not upsetting people internally was more important than yeah. serving the customer, you know. So yeah. so we've missed that thing or, you know, we should be doing this thing for the customer. But I don't want to tell Corinne that, you know, yeah. she's got to go back and do it again or, you know, fix it or something. So I'm just not going to do that, you know, or or I'm, I'm going to deliver, you know, Corinne, don't worry, just when you get to it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, just when you get to it next week, yeah. you know, yeah. but actually it's something we kind of need to address now, right? mm. but I don't want to kind of upset you or do you know what I mean? I'm putting your mm. interests kind of above everything else. Yep. And sometimes what you find in organizations that have got more of that passive defensive leaning is that even when problems with processes and policies are seen are identified, rather than have a conversation to deal with it, what they might do is develop a workaround. Right. And so, you know, a couple of years later, a lead will come and say, oh, this procedure doesn't work. Oh, yeah, we know. But we worked around it. This is what we've been doing instead. You know, and so I think there's a lot of good reasons to, for the organization, for teams and for individuals to really focus on helping people move from passive defensive behavior. And for the organization, so I'm just going to make a distinction. I'll just step back. So when we talk about culture, What we're talking is it's important for the organisation to look at what messages it's sending via systems and processes and leaders that cause people to feel they have to behave in a passive defensive way. So what are the, because I love that idea and it's one I use, you know, what are the messages we're sending to people about how they're expected to behave through the way we do stuff as an organisation? Right. And so, so what are some of, I guess, the typical ways that we see in organizations, some of the ways they do things or maybe don't do things? They actually send some of these messages about, 
hold, wait, you know, play it safe, don't take a risk kind of messages. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the typical ways that that happens, Corinne? Yeah, I think one of the first things is lack of clarity around expectations of, of what we're here to do. Now, that lack of clarity might be that the mission, our purpose, our vision. I always find myself, Dom, just as an aside, using all those words to me, why thing. we exist, right. you know, because <laughs> yeah. people use it. So when people, when the organisation hasn't got a compelling or a very clear vision around why it exists and why that matters, it's very difficult for people in the organisation to understand what their effort aligns to, what their day-to-day effort in their everyday, what they do in their job, how it connects to the big picture. Mm. So that lack of clarity, there's levels of lack of clarity in certain. So at one level, it could be that the organisation really needs to focus on refining, if they've already got a purpose or a mission or vision, then refining it so that it is very clear about what we do, why we do it, why it matters, and how our people fit into that. Okay, so that's at an organisational level. And because we described an achievement culture before as being able to use my initiative, make things happen. In service of what? We've got to know what we're shooting for. Otherwise, you're making decisions in the void. Like, what are we actually trying to achieve? It's impossible. If I'm not clear on that, it's impossible to make decisions. To what end? That's exactly right. To what end? Is why do we exist? And unless you actually, as an organization, kind of put a stake in the ground around what's important, who you are, and what does that mean, you're absolutely right, Dom. It's going to be very difficult for me to make a judgment call as to whether my investing my effort here is going to make any difference at all to that. So at the top level, it's not a clear enough mission, okay, not a shared understanding. It could be clear, but it's not a shared understanding of how that translates to day-to-day business. So I worked with one client who mission and philosophy. So one of the issues that they had was that the mission, people saying the mission wasn't clear. Now, the exec were confused by that because they sort of said, but we've got a really clear position around moving from this to this. So it was a top-line slogan or mantra, if you like. Everybody was on board with that. What people were saying they were not clear of is knowing that didn't change how they did their job day to day. So they had no idea beyond seeing it on collateral. They had no idea what it meant for me. So at one level, be clear about that kind of top line, the big picture, but then you've got to help people understand what that means for day-to-day operational factors. And that's crucial, yeah. I've seen it before. You know, every organization, we're all supposed to have a mission and purpose and all that sort of stuff, and we have that. Sometimes a question, yeah, how how meaningful is it, I guess, to day-to-day stuff? But I've seen the exact situation. I'm, I was trying to think in my head, how do I do this without revealing the organization? I've decided I can't because it's <laughs> going to be too obvious. Um, but they had big goals that, you know, it was a very purpose-led organization. That's why people joined this organization because they're very passionate about what it existed for. But its goals are kind of 20, 30 years in the future, you know, like very big things. Mm. And so it was, okay, but what does that mean this year, next yeah. year, the year after yeah. that? Like, because the jump from here to there was so huge that we actually don't know where to start. You know? And multiple so possibilities, there's yeah. A, there's a thousand possibilities. So it's like, what does it mean this year? We've got to break that thing down mm. and to make it actionable. 
You know, so mm. this year we're going to take care of A, B, C, whatever. So there are two parts to that around the mission and the mission vision is really about who are we, what do we do, and why does it matter, okay? But there's another part of that which is more behavioural, which is how do we behave in order to deliver it, which is the values and the behaviours and our standards of, of what we expect. So there's the what and the how. So if we go back to how do you build achievement, the first thing is make sure that you've got a clear mission and that your values and your expectations around behaviour are also clear. Uh-huh. If they're not clear, you can't translate them, you can't operationalise them, okay? And so I think even with the mission and values, what you and I have been talking about, Dom, is operationalising it, so turning it from a concept into a practical translating it so that our systems reflect it. So if I talk about achievement, I'm going to talk about what I think the what's and then I'm going to talk about how. So one big what is the mission. But the next thing is to operationalise the mission, you've got to turn that into an operational plan that has a set of goals uh-huh. yep, for the business business unit. But eventually, and so what happens is if you've got a line of sight, so you, you've got a ladder where you've got the mission, you've got an operational plan, that plan has a series of goals and objectives for each of the departments, then each department has to break that down into another set of goals until eventually you get down to the individual. And so there's a a cascading uh, effect so that by the time you get the individual, the individual understands this is my goal, this is how I contribute to achieving the organisational mission and I do it in this way because it helps my team achieve these goals my team achieving these goals helps the division, helps the organisation. So it's about clarity of mission, but I've seen a lot of organisations that do a beautiful job with defining the mission and the values, but it doesn't get embedded. It doesn't get traction. So it's really thinking about it as a bit of a ladder of levels of understanding of how mission gets translated into goals and then what does that mission mean for individual, the individual jobs that need to get done in the organisation? And sometimes I think that can be obvious for some departments, you know, like yeah. we are the sales team or something, so it's obvious, you know, how we bring in revenue or, you know, we're the development team or something or the operational team, so we deliver the product. Although some, you know, sometimes not, so we've got to make sure those connections are clear with the why we do this stuff. But I think as well, like finance teams or like supporting teams sometimes really yeah. miss their why. And so sometimes you've got to help them build that. You know, the finance team has to get data days down, right? We've got yeah. to reduce our data yeah. days. Well, why? Well, because you're supposed to, you want to get paid. Yeah, we want to get paid because if we have better cash flow, right, by having reduced data days, that means we've got more liquidity in the business. If we've got more liquidity in the business, we can use that money to invest in, you know, new developments or new technology or something, you know. Keep the business going. <laughs> or, or just or simply keep the business going, yeah. you know. If we do that, then that helps us deliver our mission, you know. So so it's helping people step through, so, okay, so that's why we want to get day-to-days down. Yeah. You know, so Because otherwise I think people, we should get day-to-days down because we're supposed to get day-to-days down. Because it's a, a task of the job, that's right. I think, you know, Dom, you and I did a KPY podcast not long ago, and I think I gave this example, but it was a great example of exactly what you said. The organization was implementing a very ambitious 20, 
sort of 25 strategy and they had everything planned on a page, which is great. But the finance team didn't see themselves in that plan on the page. Now, this finance team is a rock star finance team in this organization. But when we did the culture survey, it was very clear that they didn't feel their contribution was significant. Mm-hmm. And why? Because they didn't feature, obviously, in the achievement of these, this agenda, but they were critical because they did their business case. They did the feasibility study. They got the intel and the insight and the data on which decisions were made. And so for an organization, if you're looking at moving from passive to constructive, having the mission, having the goals, but then helping your teams understand what they do contributes to achieving that, why their effort, why their job exists and what it looks like when it's done, what the contribution is. And and keep connecting it. You know, I, I was just thinking with the strategy and all that stuff. So there's, because we talk about clarity, part of clarity, in my view, is simple as well. Yeah. I see so many organizations, one, you know, it's really interesting. I'll ask the, it's often the, if I'm doing culture work with a team, you know, the first thing I'll ask the executive team is, you know, what are we trying to achieve? You know, what's the strategy? And you know what the number one response is? Oh, let, let's pull it up on the computer. <laughs> and it's like, you shouldn't need to pull anything up on a computer. You know, you should be able to name that off the top of your head because it should be super simple. Yeah. This is a dominant opinion. But <laughs> but you know what I mean? Because oh, I if, it's, if it's too complicated for the executives to be able to pull it up, it, or they're like, oh, there's a lot of things to it. There's a lot of measures. And it's like, too many then. <laughs> you know, if yeah, you can't yeah. tell me, if you can't tell me standing here, then it's too complex. And, and if it's too complex, then it's not clear and we can't actually follow it and execute it. So it might as well be missing. (laughs) And and, and that's exactly right. So if you think about achievement norms are about helping people understand whether if it makes a difference. Right. So if it's too complicated or convoluted and I've got to look something up, understand it, then we've missed the point. Yeah. Okay. You've completely missed the opportunity there. You want to be able in position where people understand their goals, understand the outcomes they have to produce so that they can use their best judgment. Yep, and that's it. That's it. That's it. And interestingly, it can get convoluted and complicated because in a passive organization, we don't want to say no to people. So everyone's pet project's part of the strategy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, But it can't be. And I think that's right, and people don't want to say no. So that's another reason why passives start to come up. Some of the other reasons is that you've got a centralized decision-making hierarchical Mm -hmm. organization. So you know, classic, I see it a lot, so many organizations I've worked with where what they're saying is they want their people to be empowered, okay? Mm. They want their people to take initiative. Mm -hmm. And Dom and I were talking about this earlier. Often leaders will say it's almost like they're not taking enough initiative, like this kind of they're blaming. The level know. below us are not stepping up and they're owning not stuff. stepping up. Yep. But the question is, but they're kind of removing, you know, the systems and the, the role that leaders play. So if you've well, got it's, a it's sen- all It's all they are not. They are <laughs> right? not. It's they are not. There. It's on them. That's right. But it's, it's if you're looking at a centralised, so what we have is organisations that have got you know, where we're debriefing them and it's revealed that there's a passive culture you're going to have, but we want them to take decisions, et cetera. However, you've got a embedded decision-making process. It's hierarchical. So the message that people get is it's got to go up the line and 
There's one of the organisations we used to work with, I think, Dom, where the chief HRO, chief HR leader said that they needed to get something like 20 signatures on a recruitment approval and they're the chief um, request. And they're the chief. And they're the chief. And so and, and in some instances you've got CEOs signing off on requests for approval, recruitment that are like twelve levels down. So there's a really it's very important that you look at how decisions are made and what kind of level of influence you give employees and what kind of involvement, how involved they are. It's very difficult to take to encourage people to take initiative if all the decisions are made or centralised and are made by higher authority. I mean, you've hit one of my most passionate subjects, you know, which is pushing decision making down. And it's really interesting because I work with organisations, and there's always a reason, you know, like back in 2002, someone made a boneheaded decision, and that's why no one is allowed to make decisions anymore, yeah. and, and we've pulled it back to headquarters or whatever it is, rather than A, maybe it was just one boneheaded decision. And, you know, occasionally that's going to happen, but the value we get from people being able to make decisions on the spot where the information is massively outweighs that. Two, my challenge back is always rather than restricting and pulling, you know, pulling the reins tighter, how do we give more clarity that we've already talked about and build capability? Right? Mm. Because if they made the wrong decision, it's either because they're not clear on what we're trying to achieve or they don't have the necessarily skills, experience, whatever, to make a good call. So the the default thought should be how do we build clarity and, and capability exactly. yeah. rather than how do we restrict, remove, you know, pull the reins well, tight. And I think we've seen it a bit in the banking and finance industry with the Haynes Royal Commission where – organizations have gone to is really to really focus on minimizing risk and Mm -hmm. it's important don't get me wrong it's very important but doing it by constraining and restricting rather than educating and being clearer and understanding what kind of clarity is required in order to enable people to use their best judgment it's back to the the why thing you know i i I always think of like why don't we drink and drive (laughs) Right. And I think the restricting and rules and stuff like that is because you might get caught. Yes. Right? There might be a police officer around the corner who might catch you. Right. But that means the second I know the police officer's not looking, I might just have a couple of drinks and go for a drive. Right. Yeah. Versus why don't we drink and drive? Well, because it's about my safety, my family's safety, everyone else on the road's safety. Right. Then it doesn't matter if there's a police officer there or not. That's actually irrelevant. Right. I'm not doing it because it's a value based thing, actually. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So a couple of other things that create the passive just before we move into what do you do differently will be management by exception. So where people's effort in the organisation, anything that creates, so anything good gets taken for granted, but the things that get the spotlight are the mistakes or the things that have been missed. And so if the only time your leader is going to pay you attention is when you've done something wrong, you start to be become very careful and, and try not to be in the spotlight. So that what's creates the message a I get? Yeah, what's That's the message right. I get? It's better to do nothing. Correct. And the other thing I wanted to mention: so there's management by job exception, design. job design. I think that's part of who has influence in the organisation. But job mm. design is the degree to which I'm able to plan my own time, make decisions. 
decide how I get my how I do my job, which is the one I and, and also the other thing that's really so there's five things in job design, but the two things I just want to mention here is autonomy, three things, significance and <laughs> feedback. Oh, and there's no and task guide, <laughs> task guide, maybe four things. So autonomy is re- going to be really important. Feedback. So this is the amount of feedback that I get just by doing my job. Okay. So for example, it's not the feedback that I get from my manager, but as a consultant, there's high feedback in the job because if you're running a workshop and people are asleep, immediately you can see that your effort's uh-huh. not having the desired outcome. So the degree to which you've set your the job up so that people can self-assess. Yeah. Okay. So ideally you want people to be able to self-assess their effectiveness and their progress. The third thing is significance. So this is how important I think my job is, the degree to which it actually makes a difference. And so for achievement to grow, people have got to feel like their effort's important and what they do matters. So significance is being able to tie a connection, tie an outcome to someone's effort. One of the things that I loved about an insurance company years ago did a series of commercials where they were showing how they performed, how they helped businesses through bushfires. But that kind of ad was as much for their own people, Mm. you know, would have given their people a sense of pride Mm -hmm. in the fact that they were helping businesses continue. So significance is going to be really important. So there are a couple of things. So clarity of mission, goals, values and behaviours, being clear about standards of behaviour, distributing, so breaking, devolving the levels of influence and power, empowering others, but also setting people up for success when you empower, make sure that they're properly briefed, make sure that they have a clear understanding of what needs to be achieved, make sure that if you're giving them something new that they've got the opportunity to practice it or to learn it before you throw them in the deep end. And then when it comes to job design, making sure that you're building, you're designing Job and job design isn't about job sizing. Sometimes people get that confused. It's really about how inherently motivating is the job that somebody does. And so making sure that there's a level of autonomy. If you want discretionary effort, you've got to give some discretion. If you Uh help people own their responsibility and help people to feel, to understand the impact that they're making through their effort. So I think that's kind of a summary of the things that we've spoken about. Yeah, and I'm going to tell a story that I've told before, but I love it, so I'm going to tell it again, which is because sometimes I think leaders hear autonomy and pushing down decision-making and they kind of think chaos, you know, and it doesn't mean that we're pushing down decision-making and people can make decisions about, you know, stuff that is clearly outside of their realm. You know, we're going to restructure the company, says frontline employee, you know, like that. that's not in the scope. But it's allowing people to make decisions that should be within their scope and is within their knowledge. And I think of a city council I work with where, you know, it was a guy in charge of the outdoor teams and he had been doing it for 23 years. He knew it like the back of his hand. He could tell everyone what to do. He had done all the jobs on the team, you know, over the years. But instead of that, they had a big job where they were redoing a a road and they had to put in garden beds and, you know, redo the actual road itself, put a bend in here, whatever it was. And Steve didn't even want what to do. He got them together the week before. They walked the length of that road. And as they walked, you know, this needs to look like that. That needs to look like that at the end of the job kind of thing. Got to the end and then asked, so what do we need to do? 
And it's that simple. Yeah. And it just put it back on everyone else of what do we need to do? Okay, well, here's the plan. Here's what, you know, the guys mowing the lawns need to come in first because then they're going to lose access when we start doing the road, blah, blah, blah. They knew it, you know, but now it was their decision. It was their plan rather than his plan. Mm. And so, Mm. you know, it wasn't crazy stuff. That's all stuff that they know how to do. It's fully within their scope, right? But instead of him telling them, now it was theirs, right? They owned it. Yeah, it's a great story. You know, on the other side of that, we also talked about management by exception. Mm. When you're just focusing on what hasn't been done, what's wrong with something rather than what's right with it or actually appreciating effort that's been well invested and a good job done. And so how do you do that effectively? You know, like as a leader, I guess, what what should you be doing? If you're not going to manage by exception? Yeah. <laughs> I think that as a leader, there's a couple of ways of doing it. So the first thing is you've got to be clear on what good looks like. And you can't assume that somebody has been able to read your mind around that. Mm. You've actually, when giving somebody the brief, you've got to be clear about the optimal outcomes and be as explicit as what that looks like, what good looks like, so that people know what they're shooting for, they know what they're aiming for. So I think that's the first thing. Be really clear in your brief and be really clear about what outcome you're after and the kind of level of performance that you're looking for, that's defining what good looks like. The other thing I think too is to set up check-ins, so have some regular one-on-ones. Now, the more competent and capable your team member, the probably the less check-ins that you're going to need. Mm. But if you're asking somebody to do something that's outside of their duties or that's new, Mm. then you might want to set up some check-ins or whips with them where you check in with them and see how they're going. So I think the focus of that should be not supervision where you're micromanaging, but it's more around tracking how they're going with the role and what kind of help do they need from you. I think, you know, David Marquette, Turn the Ship Around, Mm. has great, and maybe that's, you know, a resource we can put in the show notes, has a great philosophy around intent-based coaching. So when somebody comes and asks you for a question, what should I do, then intent-based coaching would be, well, what do you, tell me what you'd intend to do. What would you intend to do? What would you thinking of doing? So putting it back on them and asking them to give that back, to come to you, not just with a solution, but with their ideas of how they could implement it. Yeah, and and on that, I think from a personal style as a leader, humanistic encouraging builds achievement in others because it's helping people to think for themselves. So what should I do? What do you see? You know, Mm. what do you think? What are we trying to achieve here? You know, those mm. kinds of questions gets people to think in achievement terms then. So as mm. a lead, and that's why humanistics are so important as a leader, because we want to build achievement thinking in others, right? Mm. So they're thinking of the goals. And I think from a cultural point of view, that's a good point because humanistic encouragement creates a psychological safety to grow achievement in others. Mm. So the analogy I use is usually you know, if you think about rock climber, there was a rock climber, there's one who climbs and there's one, the belayer. Uh-huh. And so I think leaders, if they're task-oriented, will often go to the task and sometimes see themselves as climbing the rock, whereas they're the belayer. They're uh-huh. down the bottom, they're, they're harnessed and they're holding on, making sure that the foundation's there so that somebody can scale that uh-huh. rock. And so from a humanistic encouraging point of view, that 
you know, setting people up for success, making sure that you're approachable, that people can feel that they can bring questions and concerns to you, getting them to think for themselves. Somebody said to me recently, every time you do something for someone, you take that opportunity away from them. And I thought, yeah, that's it. That's humanistic encouraging is about giving them the opportunity, not deciding to do it yourself. So I think you're right that building humanistic encouraging, but leaders got to be really clear about what outcome is important here. Because sometimes I've even had, even in my own life, I've had a boss and say, I need something that's, you know, something like this. And I'll say, well, what is that good? I'm not sure. Just try and, you know, oh, that's <laughs> now, you know, for me, that's a great challenge because I like working off blank pieces of paper. What is a complete blank page? But for some people that would completely, especially in a passive defensive culture, that would completely throw them out and probably reinforce the passive defensiveness because they might get things wrong. I remember one of my first jobs when I was in uni working as a landscape gardener and the owner would come along and say, you know, just put some trees in yeah, like this, kind of just so <laughs> so vague. And then we would all be like, okay. And then when he left, we'd look at the kind of site manager, really. So what are we doing, Dave? And he's like, okay, we need to do this and that. Like, you know, this is what's really happening. You know, because it was it was too ambiguous. Too yeah, ambiguous, we, we too loose. So, yeah. So, so. But the other thing on that is huddles, huddles and stand-ups daily huddles or, you know, scrums. So they're a great tool to build achievement in a passive defensive organisation because it gets the whole team involved. And so in no more than 10, 15 minutes, people are talking about where they're up to with their goals, what's left to be done, what's been achieved, what's been learnt, finished, that's it. And so you know, it could be daily, could be a couple of times a week, but that's a fantastic tool for building achievement orientation and getting that passive def- – and it's safe. It's a safe – you know, if people in a passive defensive culture need to feel that kind of sense of safety. So huddles or stand-ups early in the morning, you know, first thing in the morning once or every day or even, you know, twice a week is an excellent I, I love initiative. huddles as well and I love the question, you know, what are the stucks, you know? So where am I stuck that I can't progress on this thing for whatever reason? Because then it's for the leader or for everyone to, okay, we've got to address whatever that stuck is. Yeah. Because you know? otherwise we get sucked into that passive vortex of we can't move forward, so we do nothing. Yeah. Right? So what are the stucks? Let's bring it up and let's address it, you know? And if it's the next day and the next day it's still the same, so well, something's going wrong, right? At least it's on the table. And I love this as a as a constructive culture building tool because, you know, when an organisation, when leaders get huddles working well, they continue even without the leader. And Uh so, and that's why it's such a a beautiful cultural building, constructive building tool because it doesn't rely on the leader to keep running it if it's got traction, if it's working well. Now, in a passive defensive culture, when you try and bring some of these things in, because it's got a the culture is passive defensive and it might have been like this for a while, you might find that people don't know what to do with this newfound freedom. You know, Mm -hmm. you ask them, what do you want to do? I don't know. Or, you know, you organise a huddle and nobody says anything. Persist, Mm -hmm. persist, persist, persist. You know, that passive defensive culture has taken a while to build up and so it's not an automatic fix. You've got to show patience, you've got to show consistency, you've got to show clarity and encouragement and eventually it will start to work for you 
yeah, you got to stick to it a bit. I think that's the real challenge with changing passive cultures is culture is passive. So when you go to change it, guess what? People take a step back. They're waiting, mm. you know, and all, and all that stuff. So you got to stick to it a bit. You know, I, I think that is a, a big thing and, and kind of stay on the course. And, and you've really got to rally your leaders to, to rally everyone else. Yeah. Hey, so what I'm kind of taking away or, or some of the key kind of things I was jotting down as we're talking is, you know, we've got to look at our clarity of, you know, purpose, mission. What are we trying to achieve? We've got to keep that simple, right? So people actually clear what we're shooting for and therefore we can use our initiative to make decisions. But beyond that, we've got to break it down into what does it mean for my department, my team, me kind of level, right? So how can we actually, you know, it's actionable at that point, right? It's clear. We've got to link it through to why does it actually matter, right? Why do we do this stuff in lieu of what, right? And connect it there, you know, and in goal setting, include people in setting their own goal so they own include, it. That's right. You yeah. know, so it's not just the leader's goal. Push that decision-making downwards. If we feel that they can't make a decision for some reason, then it's because we either need to build up more clarity or more capability. So work on that rather than working on restricting decision-making. I've and got then two it, more things. Go, go. Are you on a roll? Oh, I'm on, on a, a bit of a roll. But go for it. Go. You might be going to say it. I was going to say the, around the leadership. So as leaders, be you know, it's that building humanistic encouraging, managing by excellence rather than exception kind of thing. So noticing what's right rather than what's wrong. Giving people discretion so they can give discretionary effort back. Having those huddles. What would you add? What did I miss? I would add, well, we didn't talk about this. So you didn't oh, really okay. Miss it. There we go. Um, so once that people are clear about their goals, make sure that when you're assessing their performance that they're based on the goals that you set for them. Okay, so that's subjective. It's not subjective measures. Also, set the measures around where their effort makes a difference. If you've asked me to get the market to migrate their taste to a new soft drink or something, chances are not everything around that is going to be within my control. So when you're assessing people's performance, make sure that it's based on the goals that you've set, that you've set together, that they're objective measures and that they're within that person's effort, so performance. The other thing is when they've achieved those expectations, then reward and recognize them for it. Okay, so that kind of completes the motivation cycle. So you've set clarity, you've set the goal, You've measured their effort and, you know, their performance based on objective measures and then you've recognized a job well done and then you repeat. Repeat and repeat, you know, and you, you right. go again. I think that's the secret of the stuff. Yeah, it doesn't happen again. overnight. To your point earlier, it doesn't, you can't just expect everything to change on a dime just because we no. say so. So we've yeah. got to stick to it. We've got to keep going. Look, I hope that helps. You know, we've had some of those conversations with people, so we thought it might just be useful to have a conversation between ourselves on it. You know, if you're in that passive defensive organization, you know, those are some key things, I think, to really focus on. Build that, particularly building that achievement, expectations for achievement behavior. You know, people's effort makes a difference. They can use their initiative, get things done, challenge themselves. You know, all that kind of stuff. Build towards that. So we wish you the best stick to it you know we've said it before i'm going to repeat it again because you're probably listening to this because you're like oh my god it's so hard to get traction stick to it right that's really the best thing you can do and and kind of demonstrate and lead the way awesome perfect excellent 
All right, thanks, Corinne. See ya. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture Bites. If you enjoy the show, remember to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, leave us a review. It helps other people to find the show. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, email podcast at human-synergistics.com.au. We'd love to answer it. This podcast is copyright by Human Synergistics Australia, all rights reserved. To learn more about what we do, visit human-synergistics.com.au. Today's episode of Culture Bites, we talked about the How Culture Works model. The How Culture Works model is from the Organizational Culture Inventory and Organizational Effectiveness Inventory. The feedback report for these surveys and other culture change resources are copyrighted by Human Synergistics International. Research and development by Robert A. Cook and J. Clayton Lafferty, all rights reserved. Please contact us if you would like to review any of these resources for organizational change and development.